December 11th, just nine days ago. It was a headline on ABC News, and it simply read, health experts called COVID-19 vaccine light at the end of the tunnel. Now, what made that announcement so very odd was this reality. On that same day, 2,951 fellow Americans died of COVID-19. And it's been higher than that number, sometimes over 3,000 ever since. And of course, just Friday, the second vaccine was approved by the FDA. And an announcement was made today that it's been approved for shipment and starting tomorrow. Millions of more vaccinations will go out scattering across the land. Light at the end of the tunnel. But that light is still kind of a long way off. There was a time 2,000 years ago when things seemed just as dark. The world was ruled by an empire called the Roman Empire. An empire that was built on the back of Roman legions. Some of the most ferocious fighting machines ever imagined by mankind. And they had conquered the known world of that time through these legions, taking half the world as slaves and basically taking the wealth of all the nations and pouring it into Rome. In a kingdom a little bit further east than the Roman Empire, there was another man on the throne. His name was Herod the Great. And he's called the Great simply because he built big things. He was a master architect. But he was also a master architect of evil. You see, the Romans had made him king of the Jews. Except there was one problem. He wasn't Jewish. He was Idumean. Now, the Idumeans had been forced to become Jews forced to be circumcised and to worship the God of Israel. But the Jews never accepted them. They were no different than the Samaritans. They were half-breeds at best. So here was a man on the throne, and, and he wanted to be the king of the Jews. He married a Jewish princess. And his first two sons were considered Jewish because their mother was Jewish. And, and so everybody was just thinking, if we can get beyond Herod the Great, then everything will be all right. But when Herod the Great heard those comments, he didn't like it. And so he had his wife, this Jewish princess, murdered. He took his two oldest sons, the daughter of that particular princess, and he had them murdered. It became so famous that the emperor in Rome said it's better to be Herod's pig than it is to be one of Herod's sons. And, and there's a play on words there in the Greek that if, if you could hear it, you'd think, wow, you know, kind of a rhyme going on there. And yet it was a rhyme that was true. And yet in the midst of that darkness, on a night outside of Bethlehem, all at once the night sky was lit up. And all at once, the shepherds who were out there, and I'm sure they were probably already bedded down, and they're getting up, and they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And there was an angel who spoke to them. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news 
Evangelion. Later translated as, I bring you gospel. And then he goes on to say that will cause great joy for all the people. Even 2,000 years later, hopefully. I, I think so. In fact, I know so. And the reason is this. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And yet, that world desperately needed light at the end of the tunnel. And there it was. I mean, for the first time, hope for a people who had grown hopeless. You see, when you turn to Scripture and you begin looking at the world at large that this baby entered into, and I appreciated Blake leading a song a while ago that talked about Jesus is coming into this incredibly corrupt world. Here's what David said in the Psalms. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 3. He said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person that gets to an age where they know the difference between right and wrong ultimately chooses wrong. He would go on to describe all of creation. You, you want to talk about the effects of sin. It wasn't just on us. It was on the world. It was on creation, the universe. For the creation was subjected to frustration. That word frustration simply means here that God created it to be one thing and it found itself being something very different and so frustrated that it couldn't be what God created it to be. And the reason? It was placed under bondage to decay. There's a reason we look around at the world. and The world just seems to be going the wrong direction. I mean, we, we look at what we're doing to the animal kingdom what we're doing to our forest, what we're doing to our air, to our water. I mean, every time I read of the kind of pollutions that are now found in the oceans, I think, boy, we are a world in bondage to decay. And in the midst of it, though, in the midst of all of that brokenness, came one by the name of Jesus. He came into a broken world. I want you to remember that word broken because it's going to pop up over and over and over again. In Luke chapter 1, you have this marvelous story. And it's a story that we'll be reading, in fact, this Wednesday night. But it's a story that sometimes need to be read, needs to be read differently. You see, I love Christmas. Mike talked last week. Mike's here in the balcony. He talked last week about how he loves everything about Christmas. And Mike, I agree with you. And I love the stories of the birth of Jesus. But I do think sometimes we read them with rose-colored glasses. I want to invite you to read them maybe a little different this morning. The text begins in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth was Zachariah's wife, the parent, future parents of John the Baptist. See, he's the forerunner of Jesus. And Gabriel had come to Zechariah and said, you're going to be a father, Elizabeth's going to be a mother in your old age. I suspect maybe they're in their 50s at this time. And they just can't believe it. Now, at this point, well beyond childbearing, we're going to become parents? Yes. 
And then Gabriel goes six months later as, as Elizabeth's into her pregnancy and he goes up to a little village there in Galilee called Nazareth and he goes, notice verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Don't miss that. Boy, those, each word is so important. I mean, you see, Elizabeth's not the only one pregnant. Mary's going to be pregnant. These words are pregnant. So much meaning in each one of them. The virgin's name was Mary. And of course, when the angel appears, I mean, Mary's scared to death, and yet at the same time, she's in awe of what he says. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you're going to conceive, give birth to a son, and you're to call him Yeshua, which is Yahweh is salvation. Mary, at the time, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, you see, we, we have pushed marriage way back in our age. Average age today of a first marriage is somewhere around 27, 28 years old. And yet I think back to my grandmother who got married when she was barely 14 years old. We've kind of gone a very different direction when you think about it. Twice as old as my grandmother was is the average age of the first marriage today. And so back then, people got married young. And so here's Mary. She's 14, 15, 16 years old. But she already knows about the birds and bees. She knows about life. She's been taught by her mother. And her response to the angel is, wait a minute. I'm a virgin. How in the world am I going to have a child? And the angel goes on to explain the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. I mean, you look at those words and you think, okay, God, what are you doing? And the answer is, that's all I'm going to tell you. But the end result is, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then she goes on, or, or Gabriel goes on, and notice what he says in verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be unable to conceive is in the sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Now you see that and you think, wow, what an incredible announcement. And yet the question is, really? You see, I don't know if you've ever thought about just what that news meant to Mary. Mary's engaged. Jewish marriages began with parents. You see, unlike today, you didn't pick who you got married to in the first century. Your parents picked them for you. Aren't all of us glad that's not true today, right? I've often said that my dad would have probably chosen pretty well, but my mom, oh man, alive. You know, I would have been in trouble. I still remember some of the girls my mom suggested me dating and, you know, when I was in high school, and I'm like, okay, mom, no more conversations. You know, this is it. But that's the way they did it back then. And so basically, Joseph's dad had come to Mary's dad and said, listen, my son would like to take your daughter in marriage. And of course, back then, that was a transaction. There would be a, a, basically a bridal price to be paid that would be arranged to give Mary, or, or to give Mary's dad, which would then go to Mary as protection because divorce was so rampant in the first century. And, and, and they would pledge basically their two children. And that pledge would last one year. It would go up to a year. And by the way, the person who decided when it was time to marry was the boy's or the man's father, the dad who had arranged the marriage. 
And the sun would begin providing or, 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 or building the, the space there, adding usually on to his dad's own house where he and his wife would begin their living together. And then when everything was perfect, the father would say, Son, go and get your bride. And you'd have the announcement that the bridegroom is on his way. And the bride had to be prepared. And so during that year-long time, she didn't know when he would come. And so here they are in that time. Mary's preparing. She's waiting. And now she's told she's fixing to be pregnant. How do you tell your parents that? Y'all ever thought about that? I mean, how does a 15-year-old girl go into her mom and dad and say, Mom and dad, I'm pregnant. But Joseph's not the dad. Uh, God is. Y'all ever thought about that? I mean, if your daughter had told you she was pregnant by God, what would you do? I know if one of my sons had said, Dad, my, my fiancé's pregnant, I didn't do it. She says God did it. I'd tell my boys it's time to get a new fiancé, right? I mean, come on, that doesn't make sense. In fact, not only does it not make sense, it's actually something called blasphemy. Except in this case, it's true. And I've often wondered, did she tell Joseph? And the answer I know right now is no. In fact, I suspect that Mary thought, what in the world am I going to do? I'm supposed to be married here in just a few months. Joseph's going to come get me. I am now fixing to be pregnant. What in the world do you do when you find news like that? And the answer is, you get ready and you head down to Elizabeth. You need the advice of an older woman. And she knows that Elizabeth is part of somehow this grand scheme and what God is doing. And so notice the text. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried. I mean, you can almost see her as she is telling her parents, I've got to go down and see her, our cousin Elizabeth. Why? I've just got to go and do it. And off she takes off. And she goes down to Judea and she goes to the house. And notice the text there. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you'll bear. And why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Can you imagine what Mary's thinking? Babies leaping in wombs? What do you mean, the mother of your Lord? Which, what are you talking about, Elizabeth? And the text says that for six months, excuse me, for three months they talked. For three months until the baby came. And after three months, Mary headed back north toward Nazareth. That whole time, God's at work. Slowly knitting his son in the womb of Mary looking a little more pregnant every day. And she finally gets to Nazareth. And you know, Nazareth's a little village at this time. It just would have been a few hundred people at most that lived there. And all the women would go out to the well a couple of times a day to draw water. It's just what you did in the ancient world. And Mary arrives, and it doesn't take long. People begin to notice she putting on a little weight, isn't she? Mary, is everything okay? You've been gone for a while. Where have you been? And before long, the whispers start. Mary. Mary? Not Mary. I mean, she's in synagogue every Sabbath day. I mean, she comes from a good family. 
I mean, she's pledged to Joseph, one of the best guys in the village. Are you kidding? Not Mary. Yeah, Mary. She's pregnant out of wedlock. And the word comes finally to Joseph. And Mary's real world is broken again. Because now her reputation is gone. Now she's the one. We all know what we're talking about if you grew up in a small town. And so what does Joseph begin to do? He, he's, a, he's a righteous man. He's probably 18, 19, 20 years old. And he don't want to put her to public shame. That's the last thing in the world he wants to do. I mean, you, imagine all the questions going on in his head. No wonder she left. No wonder she went down to Judea. Is there somebody down there? Is there someone I haven't heard about? You know, regardless of what it is, I'm not going to put her to public shame. I'm not going to put her on trial in the very heart of Nazareth. And so he decides to divorce her quietly. You see, back then when you got engaged, it took a divorce to break the engagement. And yet the text says that while he thought about it, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in his dreams. And this angel said to him, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary. For what's conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. And of course, you go over to Matthew's gospel, and he's told as well that he is to name him Jesus. And so notice, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home and his wife. Have you ever thought what that meant? I mean, have you ever thought about it? You see, there is no wedding party anymore. There is no wedding celebration anymore. There's no Joseph's dad saying to him, Son, go and get married. It's time to get married. She's pregnant. There's no gathering of the whole community, you know, with all the wine and all the food and all the celebration. She's pregnant. And on top of that is a law you find in the Old Testament that says that if you sleep with a girl before you're married, you have one of two choices. You can either marry her or pay the bridal price. You see, fornication was dealt with very different than adultery. And so here is Joseph, and guess what? He's told by an angel, you take her to be his wife, which is a way of saying to the public, I'm the father. I'm the one that did this. And by the way, what are you going to say to your friends? What are you going to say to your parents? An angel told me to do it? Are you serious? I mean, can you imagine the chatter in the village now? Yeah, God made her pregnant and the angel told him to marry her. Boy, we all believe that one, don't we? You see, their worlds were broken. Their reputations were gone. And I suspect that when the announcement came that it was time for them to go down to Judea because of the census, I suspect Joseph was like, anything to get me out of this place. And so they head south. And they go down to Bethlehem, the town of David, because that's where his family was from. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in these strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. I think it's time that we reclaim the real story. You know, I love Christmas, and I love the baby in the manger. But I also grew up on a farm. 
And you know, in all my days, when I grew up on the farm, when we had cows and pigs and, you know, goats and all the animals you have on the farm, do y'all know that not one time did my dad say, you need to go down to the barn and put some feed in the manger? Y'all know that? You see, in Mississippi, we called it a feeding trough because that's what it is. It's not this beautiful little wooden structure with nice soft hay all in it that's just gorgeous and ready for pictures to be taken with all the animals smiling behind it. Folks, that's not what happened. They put Jesus in a feeding trough because it's the only place they had. The world was broken, and that was the world Jesus was born into. And then I love the next phrase that's used here. Look at the text here. Because there was no guest room available for them. Have you ever noticed what the text says? Here is a young couple, a girl waiting to give birth to a child. They arrive in Bethlehem, and it's not like the Holiday Inn is filled up. That's not what's going on. It's that when they get there, what few guest rooms are available, it's not that they're filled up, it's just that, that none of them are available for them. Why? Because they're poor. They don't have the money. Do you think if Joseph had had the money, Mary would have given birth in a barn? Do you really believe that? I mean, basically, it's like, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have room for you, for you, for people like you. There is a barn out back, though, if you want to use it. And so Jesus was born into a broken world. It's not long that wise men show up. I mean, they show up there in Bethlehem, and I can just imagine both Mary and Joseph thinking, what in the world's going on here? I mean, gifts of frankincense and gold and myrrh. And yet, he barely gets to sleep when an angel of the Lord comes to him. Get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt, and stay. Why? Because Herod's fixing to try to kill him. And once again, we're back to the world being broken. And Joseph gets up and he heads out of town. And the next thing you know, the little village of Bethlehem has soldiers and horses riding through. And the next thing you see is basically the death of the innocents as every little boy in Bethlehem under the age of two is slaughtered. I mean, does that sound like Christmas? You see, some parts of the story we just somehow leave out because it's part of a broken world. Isaiah 53 is one of the most amazing texts about the coming suffering servant, the birth of Jesus. And when you look at that text, and I've just thrown it up here and I've kind of compressed it, but I want you to notice some of the words up here. Despised, rejected, suffering, uh, pain, low esteem, stricken, punished, pierced, crushed, wounds, iniquity, oppressed, slaughter. Boy, slaughter both the babies as Jesus as well. Oppression, judgment, cut off, crushed, suffering. All words describing what was awaiting this baby who was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. He was born into a broken world. But what's amazing is that when you go on to the end of the story, Revelation chapter 21, something that we don't normally link with the other. We find something amazing happening because through everything that Isaiah 53 describes, 
Jesus now does what, what he came to do, which was to purchase my pardon and yours, to redeem me and you, to save us from our sins. And just as 2,000-some years ago, Jesus came into our world. I don't know how many years into the future, but Jesus is one day going to say, would you come into my world? Just as I came into yours, I invite you into mine. And when you look at his world, what a different world it is. Look at the words from Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, not in bondage to decay, not subjected to frustration, but set free through our own salvation in Jesus Christ. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and they feared the sea back then. And so John says there was no longer anything like a sea to be afraid of. He then says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You see, the old Jerusalem had a man by the name of Herod in it. A man who ordered the soldiers to kill the infants in Bethlehem. But the king of the new Jerusalem will be very different. You see, his name will be Jesus. And it will be a perfect Jerusalem. A heavenly Jerusalem. And I love the text here. Notice what he says here. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I can imagine what Mary thought when she saw this text. I mean, the, the girl who didn't get the beautiful wedding that she had always longed for, and here's her son saying, Mom, can I tell you that there's a wedding day coming in the future in which the new Jerusalem, beautifully prepared as a bride dress for her husband's going to come down for you and for all of my people. And then the dwelling of God will be with us. Jesus came to dwell in a broken world. God invites us to come dwell in his world where he will be our God and we will be his people. And then I love this the best. And he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death. Not from COVID. Not from cancer. Not from diabetes. Not from accidents. You know, that you talked about, Joe, no more, no more death of any kind. And not just death, but no more mourning or crying or pain. Words that describe our world today all around literally the globe. And here's John saying, can I tell you about a world where all of that will be gone? Why? Because the old order of things will be passed away. And then I love verse 5. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Everything. New bodies, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, new dwelling with God, new purpose in life. Everything is going to be new. Broken. Yeah, right now. But Jesus says, just wait. You see, I came into a broken world to invite you into a world broken no more. That's why accepting the Savior is so important. And the invitation is always yours.
Maybe it's time to accept not just the baby in the manger, but the Christ on the cross. Because that's what gives us the invitation into His world, which is what we all want to do. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for coming into our world in the form of Jesus, Your Son. Thank You for taking this broken world and redeeming it. And then inviting us into Your new world. And Father, it will be a world so different than the one we're experiencing now. So Father, thank you. And may we all, through faith and obedience to your gospel, say yes to that invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's everyone please stand. As we